Hello and welcome to another Tenterhooks edition of Romaniacs. All week we've been hearing leaks that the deal is finally, finally about to be announced. There have been rumours of cancelled ministerial leave, foreshadowings of the inevitable government media push to sell the deal to the electorate, and Dominic Raab doing his best to wreck it all by flying the idea of an Irish backstop deal that we can pull out of any time we like, which is not really a backstop deal. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky, pacing up and down outside the delivery room and hammering the fags with me are two of our regulars. <laughs> Naomi Smith is Chief Operating Officer of Best for Britain and she tweets as Pimlicat. Hello, Naomi. Welcome back. How are you? Oh, well, you know, another week in Brexit land. <laughs> How it's good fun, can any it? of us really be? <laughs> um... So in in your sort of People's Vote ballpark, mm. uh, Momentum just released its Brexit consultation, found, found that over 80% of Momentum members are backing a fresh referendum if no election happens, mm. and uh, 41% want one in all circumstances, um, and only 17% oppose a public vote under any circumstances. This is uh, This seems very encouraging. Do you expect it to move the needle in Corbyn's head? Well, I think the really <laughs> crucial number in there is that um, 92% of its members think that Labour MPs should vote down the government deal. And we know that that is the first step. If the government deal is not voted down, it becomes incredibly difficult for us to get any kind of people's vote. All other routes to victory but become is, much more difficult. Isn't that going to happen? In any, I mean, that's that seems to be a, a given for right, quite a so, while now. So, so I'm not... I'm not I, I'm sure it is where it comes to Corbyn and the leadership. What is going to be very interesting for us is how hard that whip is, how tight that whip is on the rest of the Labour MPs. Because remember, mm. we've got Caroline Flint saying, I've got 45 Labour MPs that will vote with me with the government. You know, we've had other ones making noises in the wrong direction. If they don't think the whip is strong enough, then mm. they could abstain. And abstentions are a bit of a risk for us with the Labour MPs at mm. the moment. So I think this poll is a really great way of focusing their minds that, you know, the vast, vast majority of Momentum members want them to vote down the deal. And, of course, a, a very significant chunk of them think that Brexit will make things worse. And that's any form of Brexit, you know, whether it's Labour's own six tests Brexit or, or what Theresa May is, is bringing back. Um, so I think it's a, it's a good survey to focus the minds of the Labour leadership, but really importantly, some of those wavering MPs. Well, does, does what Momentum think affect someone like Carolyn Flint, who's not really a Momentum type of person? Well, I think that um, there are all sorts of, you know, things that come out of various momentum groups in terms of, you know, threats of deselection and things like that. So I don't think any MP can really afford to be ignoring them. Mm. Um, I think it shows that you can support Labour's position on social and economic issues while also totally loving the EU. Um, but, you know, I think we'll be talking later about some of the big polls that came out this week and were covered mm. on Channel 4, which I think will also help to focus the minds of people mm. like Caroline Flint. Mm. Thanks. Also with us is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk and the dapper chap you saw defending Doctor Who's ratings on Sky Papers on Monday. Oh yeah, fuck, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> they get you on for all the important stuff. <laughs> when I kind of picked that story, but just the sun's bullshit. I love everything the sun says slagging off Doctor Who. And you're just like, so what you're really saying is you don't like that she's a woman. I mean, that's clearly the sort of the ultimate stuff going on behind all of it. It's just complete and utter hogwash. Apart from that, you're right, pretty good chilled. times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's have a sort of quick update on the on the negotiations and uh, how soon a deal is likely and and what the obstacles are and all that fun stuff. It's really unclear, actually. It, it's quite funny because the the messages, like especially around Parliament, were quite confused yesterday. The kind of the kind of stuff that was coming out of the lobby was extremely was really sort of trying to push down expectations, possibly cynically, possibly uh, you know you know legitimately. Um, and then lots of the other messages coming in were very, very different. And then, of course, we saw this paper from that the BBC got hold of, which may or may not be true, about the, the government's communications grid for once something comes out, with the idea that Dominic Raab was going to come out on Thursday. Makes it quite believable that it will be Thursday, because as we all know on this podcast, that's when they do anything that will fuck <laughs> us. Um, and say so that there's been significant you know, progress, and then Theresa May would do a speech to the CBI and urge the country to get together. And you can imagine the amount of just nonsense that comes from that. Um, I, I, I have to say, I, I still keep all of my... All of the stuff they're talking about now is ultimately about the mechanisms around the backstop. You know, do you have some kind of joint committee that adjudicates on disputes and, and decides when the backstop would no longer be needed? All this kind of stuff. What's funny about it is that it's not really about who decides. It's really about on what basis would you make the decision that the backstop is not needed? Because Theresa May is going around going, you, we're going to have a Canada-style free trade agreement. 
And the, you know, if the backstop came in, it would just tide us over until then. If you've got a Canada style free trade agreement, there is a border in Ireland. So whichever way you look at this thing, it's still, it, if the backstop was to work, it would wrap you into customs union and single market for goods at least, and that leads the single market further. So ultimately, all of the contortions, all of the illogical aspects of this are still there. It's still a fundamentally insane proposal made up of contradictory ideas. And them talking about all of the mechanisms seems like just this really, really tedious sci-fi movie. There is a huge amount of noise at the moment, as Ian says, and um, I think they've just announced that there'll be a second cabinet meeting this week because yesterday's did not go quite as planned. So Mm. I I think what we can take from what came out of all of the news stories earlier this week is that the government are desperately trying to move this forwards. And certainly us in the Remain campaigns are working on the assumption that the government is desperately trying to get the Commons to have a deal to vote on this side of Christmas. And I think they'd really love it towards the end of November, early December. Now, of Mm. course, that can all uh, go wrong, as it seems to be doing. And, of course, we've got the DUP wading in as well with various different views on uh, no deal looking ever more likely. So um, I think, think, you know, what we can take is that they are pushing very, very hard. They would like it to be sooner rather than later. Why do you think it is? Because we we all sort of presume that they'd be happier with it. The later it was, the happier the government would be. But it's true that you get the impression that it's a genuine push. I mean, I I don't necessarily have a view on that because I would agree with you that Conservative MPs who are, you know, remain-leaning are much more likely to row in and back it if we're into January and the prospect of no deal, and they're really looking over that cliff edge and seeing no deal right before them with very, very little sand left in the egg timer in Article 50. Um, But, you know, uh, the the grid that was leaked seemed to suggest that they really were pushing Mm. for it, and and it may well be that, you know, there are other discussions that have happened in Brussels that we just don't know about. Mm. And quickly, what do we uh, make of the US midterms? Uh, does have, can, we, can we import a little hope from the States today? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm always really sort of sceptical of the whole, like, this happened in this country that has a completely different political culture. To oh, no, no, I don't level. literally mean it would affect anything, but I just mean uh, in reasons to feel less. Definitely. I feel less shit today yes. than I did yesterday. And, and not least because, of course, that video that Trump retweeted, I thought, like, if you start succeeding on the basis of this, I don't know if you watched that video, it was this sort of Latin cop killer mm-hmm. showed him again and again, and then just cut to... Central Americans, you know, basically it was like the breaking point poster for Brexit, but times mm. 20, really. It made the breaking point poster look like, you know, quite genteel. And you just think if this shit works, it's going to get so, so bleak. You know, we really have to demonstrate it doesn't work. Obviously, I had a knockback two years ago, but I woke up today feeling feeling pretty good about it. Uh, but I think what we can take from it as Remainers campaigning, potentially in another referendum, is that where the Democrats won big was where they fought the election from the left, where they were fielding women, when they were fielding people of colour and people who weren't total sellout liars um, and I think that's where the leaders of the Remain movement need to look and sound like in order to win um, because I think you know it, it really was a kind of lesson in, in you know instead of pitching rich against poor it was xenophobia against diversity it was closed minds versus open it was fatalism versus hope. Well it was a weird election where actually three of the uh, people who lost were actually three of the good news stories mm. because of the campaigns they ran, because yes. of the, the sort of inspiration. Texas and, and obviously in Georgia, I, I, I assume that Kemp has won, I think Kemp has won in Georgia, and that was a massive voter suppression. So it's sort of like mm. the the idea that we just sort of feel gloomy because Stacey Abrams and Beto O'Rourke yeah. didn't win. Exactly. I think misses yeah. the lesson that there's a huge amount of energy and and uh, so we just need a, a Remainer Beto O'Rourke to... Indeed. <laughs> Somebody who used to be in a, in a hardcore punk band. <laughs> Put the call out. Later on the show, we've got special guest Ruth Fox from the Hansard Society to talk about how parliamentary procedure could determine the final shape of Brexit. What exactly is happening with the Henry VIII powers we heard about in conjunction with the EU Withdrawal Act? And will the government be able to control what's on the table for the meaningful vote in order to frustrate any moves to remain? Plus, Alpha Gamma and Aaron Banks, free publicity <laughs> tour on the BBC. Ma last week, question time coming up. You can't get away from him. Is it right for a person under criminal investigation to get a platform he can use to muddy the waters? No. (laughs) I'm not going to pretend that's a question. Channel 4's live audience show Brexit, What the Nation Thinks. We salute eye-roll girl Harriet from Twitter and ask if Channel 4's polling told us anything new. And a new Politico poll confirms what we all know. Most British voters want Brexit compromise, but Tories don't. All this and more after quick reminders from Naomi. 
Tickets for the next Romaniacs Live are flying out of the door faster than urgent notifications to the National Crime Agency. Our last performance of 2018 is at the Leicester Square Theatre in London on Monday 10th of December. Dorian, Ian plus regulars Ros Taylor and Ingrid Oliver will be picking through the breckage of 2018, predicting what will happen next year and generally ruining your Christmas. What could be more festive? Tickets are on sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com and naturally, our Patreon backers got early bird access and a discount on tickets. You can get that discount too, plus Romaniacs merchandise and every edition of the podcast a whole day early if you pledge just a small amount each month to support us on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just search Patreon Romaniacs for more information or just go to the Romaniacs Facebook page. We clocked up our 1,000th Patreon backer this month and there was a special preview giveaway of our Christmas merchandise to celebrate. Hold on to the end of the show to find out who won and who won those copies of the Ladybird story of Brexit from last week. That's Romaniacs Live on Monday the 10th of December. Tickets at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Thanks, Naomi. Now, the battering ram of Brexit news this week is Aaron Banks reported to the National Crime Agency last week in connection with his £8 million funding of the Leave campaign. Leave.eu, Better for the Country, and Leave.eu's chief executive, Elizabeth Bilney, were also reported. The jab of the hut of Leave responded in characteristically classy manner by slagging off his accusers and muddying the waters on the Andrew Marr show and insulting a Channel 4 journalist on the way out. It also emerged this week that the Information Commissioner's Office has levied a fine of £135,000 on Leave.eu and Banks' Eldon Insurance for serious breaches of privacy and electronic communications regulations. Leave.eu sent 300,000 emails to Eldon customers. Banks appears to have leaked this story to BuzzFeed in order to spike it, to which Carol Cadwallader tweeted, There's a much bigger story. Did Banks weaponise his customers' insurance state to target EU ref voters with Farage lies and propaganda? Meanwhile, Cambridge Analytica's Alexander Nix and UKIP in general have refused to speak to the ICO under caution. So we have to be careful, apparently, about the substance of the accusations. (laughs) (laughs) Sticks in my throat. (laughs) Libelous speculation is my uh, hobby. But what what did we make of uh, Banks' appearance on Mar? Not much. I I have to say, I I didn't really get this. I didn't really get the outrage at the invitation. Um... I don't, I mean, first thing is, the, the, the main person that it would damage in terms of, you know, complicating their case is the person who's being interviewed. And usually the idea has been to protect someone who is accused of something or it's a criminal thing. And he's the one that wants to go do the interview. So in that case, I don't really think that that holds. On the second, it's then to say, well, look, he's been found sort of guilty of it by a regulator, or a regulator's found against him. So then to have him on talking acts like his view is equivalent to that of the regulator, and it's a, you know, he said, she said thing. Well, you sort of think, like, again, I don't... I, if, that, if that moral lesson was to hold, we would get something like, you know, after the, the inquiry into the Iraq war, that was, was it the Hutton inquiry? Hutton, yeah. We would then say, oh, well, we can't have any, you know, any anti-war voices out there, because that suggests that they're, you know, that they're equivalent to an inquiry. I, I don't really see where that goes. So I thought that the outrage was a bit... I, I, just, I didn't really understand it. Um, However, I have to say, I don't think Andrew Marr is really the person that I want doing those interviews. And that's not really a Brexit thing. I mean, I'd be perfectly happy to have it be Andrew Neil, for instance, who's very, very Brexity, but I think is quite forensic and much better at, at really knocking someone down. And Marr, I, I do find a bit light. I've, you know, well, the same it, when he did Marine Le Pen, I thought you, that it, you're not the right guy for this. It, there's a reason ministers always choose to go on Marr. Yeah. Right? yeah because he yeah. gives them an easy ride. And I think it was incumbent upon whoever did that interview to go armed with the facts to rebut, 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 because Banks was always going to go incredibly well briefed. You know, probably had an entire team around him coaching him before it about how, mm-hmm. to, how to say things, when to say it, which punches to get in early, etc. And it smacked to me, it came across to me as, as somebody who had woken up in Primrose Hill or whatever, wandered down to the studio, had a quick chat with the production team about what angle should we take. It wasn't somebody who had all of the knowledge at their fingertips to rebut Banks in the way he deserved right. to be. Yeah. And, and that, that's the bit that's a bit Well, I think the backdrop to the, to the outrage, because I, I can see your point, but I think the backdrop is just like a, 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 a plunge. And I'm a real kind of like instinctively, I'm a very BBC kind of, hmm. you know, pro-BBC kind of person. But there just needs to be this plunging faith in the BBC's uh, judgment and ability to get these things right, and I think a persistent problem. I'm not saying that Banks is the, you know, white nationalist like Steve Bannon, although I'm sure he's met some. Um, <laughs> but it's it's always the idea. It's just like, well, you've got to expose these people, and it's just like the the, the assumption always that they've got the best interviewers in the world, mm. and, they're, but they, they don't, don't and they're going to expose be, them. Yeah, and they're going to shred these people, and, you, and we're not giving them a platform. We're we're tough questioning, and again and again and again, there's a disappointing interview. 
where basically the person being questioned can can pretty much sort of you know chalk it up as a as a win, at least compared to not being invited on at all. His team will have high fived him when he walks back into the green room and said that was a good job. And I, th- I think the two of you. <laughs> That's are, an image. I'm sure. I think the two of you are exactly right on first of all the lack of research, and secondly on on the way that the BBC isn't getting this stuff right. But it is important for us to distinguish between the principle of having people on, which I think does need to be defended. And I mean, most of the attacks I saw were on the principle of having invited him, right. rather than the way in which the BBC is doing the stuff that it's doing. And on the latter, it seems that there's a good case to make. On the former, I'm much less comfortable with the way that we discussed it last week. And then Laura Kunzberg, who we generally like, didn't, didn't sort of help by, by rushing to the BBC website to say this hasn't changed Brexit. No, but would, again, we expect, I... would we expect it to change Brexit? I don't know. For me, I find this a bit of a a bit of a straw man. I don't get that. So, I, I mean, it seemed to me that she was she was doing a political analysis. It seems like the right political analysis to me. I mean, it's the kind of thing that we would say on this programme quite frequently. So we'll say there's more revelations coming out about dirty money. We don't really think that this changes the process. It doesn't. It's not really the kind of thing that's going to stop it, but actually it might work. It might discredit something. That's what we do, and that's what she was doing. And then when there was an attack on, I think it was Carol Goodwater, who, who's, who's brilliant, but I, I thought this particular attack was a judge because it was like saying to, saying to Kunzberg, by saying this, you create the reality of what it is. But of course, anything that BBC political editor says mm. has that effect because mm. it's the BBC mm. political editor. So it's like saying you can no longer do any political analysis. And that doesn't seem to me to be a credible position to put her in. Something that's receiving less attention is the allegation from Ben Bradshaw and Tom Watson that Theresa May prevented the security services from investigating Banks's activities when she was Home Secretary because it was too political. Some MPs called for Brexit to be suspended, rather optimistically, while this is investigated. Um, how much of a story do we, does, does that strike you? It's all getting quite bodyguard, isn't it? Um, I mean, I, I don't think we can ever afford A little less to... sexy. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot, a lot less sexy, Dorian, I think you meant to say. Um, I, just, I don't think we can afford to hope that something can suspend Brexit. Um, there are legal eagles that are on it and looking into it at the moment um, and, uh, you know, trying to sort of uh, come up with um, solid cases against the viability of the referendum should all of this be, you know proven um but i think the key thing is really going to be about the future of how we fight elections and the new rules that are going to have to come in and being incredibly clear with those and beefing up the sanctions particularly around um online campaigning um and and you know as i as i say proper 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 guidance on that because as a campaigner that's the thing that's making me very anxious at the moment is just not knowing what's coming down the road because it's, it's going to have to and it absolutely rightly should be much tighter and much clearer than it was before and just, I mean, just sort of re-establishing the rule of law and the idea well, that, that you know, yeah. and, to, and to sort of separate that from politics and go, well, if it's if there are suggestions that somebody has broken the law, you look into that, whether or not it's politically convenient and quickly. And it's, it's quite sort of basic. Yeah. I don't think anybody. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps one of Owen Jones's straw man remainers thinks this, but I, I, I don't know anybody who thinks that we're just going to be cancel Brexit. No. On a legal no. technicality. No. That's really no. not what's at stake, I think. Mm. Moving on. On Monday, Channel 4 tried to take the temperature of the British public with a show called Brexit, What the Nation Thinks. The show centred on the largest poll since the referendum, which revealed that we've shifted to 54% remain against 46% leave in the two years since the vote. They had a refreshing panel of maverick young go-getters consisting of the Tories' David Goke, <laughs> Labour's Barry Gardner... <laughs> And the Thomas Pynchon of Brexit, <laughs> Nigel Farage. <laughs> but, but the highlights were certainly Caroline Lucas, our own Nina Schick, <laughs> making more sense than anyone, and eye-roll girl Haley becoming an internet sensation for her ocular gymnastics. Well, we have Farage to point out, she's, she's, a she's a lever. Yeah. yeah, and not only that, she's the fucking worst kind of lever as well. She's really? the... She's the, she's the, because there's not freedom of movement for the whole world, we're not allowed to have it only in Europe. So to end racism, I want to get rid of freedom. She's like yeah. the fucking pits of leaders. So top no. eye roll, not so great on the politics. Oh, wait, right. if, if we're just being technical here about <laughs> eyeball manipulation. <laughs> she's su- A grade. Superb. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps assuming that she's a fantastic person with rock-solid views was a mistake that I made in the heat of the moment because I saw the eyeballs and I just thought nobody who could do that could be a lever. But, you know, you live and learn. But what what is good, though, is that she's the kind of lever that is staunchly still leave but really cannot stand Nigel Farage and he really Mm. is their only kind of key figure at the moment. So if he's very, very divisive for leave, then I think that 
probably quite helpful for us. Mm-hmm. There's, there's quite a few. There's probably a thing she represents about 10% of, of mm. the Leave votes. That, that kind of, you know, the sort of really quite, not just the standard Lexeter thing of the brown suited state aid stuff, but the more sort of weird fringe element of freedom of movement is racist. Um, so, yeah, there's, quite, there's actually quite a few of them out there. Firstly, it was a great TV moment when the poll results uh, came up because Barry Gardner just looked like he'd seen a ghost. <laughs> And uh, Farage said the sample wasn't big enough, so we need a bigger poll. Which, uh, Naomi, what do you think of the idea of a bigger poll to find out what people think of Brexit? Would that, would that work? Oh, it's just him showing his ignorance again. Um, so this was a similar um, methodology, well, the same methodology that um, Best of Britain did over the summer with Hope Not Hate. This is this multi-level regression post-stratification analysis where you take a very large poll, but you then add in tens of thousands of extra data sets on top of it. So it is statistically very meaningful. It has accurately predicted Trump's election, uh, the snap general election in 2017. So, you know, he's just wrong on all of that, as usual. Um, And I think it's really interesting when you sort of break it down and start looking into the ins and outs of it. You know, this is the largest poll that's been commissioned by a non-partisan group since the referendum. Um, And among people who voted in 2016, the split is now 50-50. So that's a 2% swing to us. Um, with our 52% lead coming because of people dying who were more likely to have been uh, leave voters in 2016 and people entering the electorate um, are, 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 <laughs> are mainly people who would vote Remain. And what did you think of it as a, as a show? Because I was quite... I mean, I didn't watch it because when I saw Channel 4 tweet it and I saw the panel and there was Farage again, it's just like the laziest booking mm-hmm. in the world... And then Goke and Gardner, and mm. then Caroline Lucas. And I thought, hang on, isn't this like three levers of different shades? And so right off the bat, it just, I thought, well, if you can't even get the balance of a four-person panel right, and then obviously later I found out that Nina was on, and I felt, you know, like I should have watched it. I should have watched it. You know, I said to miss her, but you know, I, I, that's something that I would have watched if I had actually. But the, but the, right off the bat, the panel yeah. just seemed off, and I, and also I just I suppose I have little faith in these this kind of format of and show. And in the beginning, uh, the start, Christian goes to the audience and speaks to three people who are all leavers straight away so that even the audience was framed right from the start as being quite pro-leave. I have a tiny bit of sympathy with the producers. Um, having done shows like Victoria Derbyshire where you're brought on as a Remainer and then there's supposed to be somebody who's changed their mind and then there's somebody who hasn't mm. from the other side. And people don't tell them the truth when they're being booked. And quite often the person who says, I've changed my mind, I was a Remainer and now I'm a Leaver, it's just not true and they were always a Leaver and they're sort of quite rabid. So I think it can be slightly difficult to get the truth from from the, from the an audience perspective, but quite clearly from the panel, it felt it felt pretty skewed the wrong way. It's great telly. I mean, I, so, I, mean, I, look, I particularly enjoyed the look on uh, Gardner's face when Nina was talking, because Nina was just sat there basically just stating objective fact. fact. And he would just, he had that white sheen of resistance just kept on sort of like nervously shaking his head and you're just like you can't shake your head at, at saying just actual trade facts and yet there he was and just being presented with reality and the, the political response to reality is just to like in a slightly sketchy way just shake your head but what's going on in his you... head I mean at least like you know what Farage wants whereas Gardner said because I did I did see this clip where he's like it goes well it will, it will be worse we will be economically worse off but mm. people didn't just vote for that and once you've sort of conceded that that seems like quite a big thing that you're kind of like all in favour of making people economically worse off. It's so fucking no, extraordinary. So no wonder he just looks sort of confused. Like you know, when that poll result came in, it's like, well, you could if he'd smiled, I would have been that that would have made an equal amount of sense. It's like, oh, good. Hmm. But it should just be seem a so conflicted for him because this poll isn't telling us anything that lots and lots and lots. <laughs> he should of check other out the Labour Party. Exactly. Wait till he sees those momentum yeah. results. In yeah, no, frankly, bizarre that he would not have seen this coming. Having the two of them there, I mean, Gork and him, just saying, actively saying, we are working to make you all poorer. poorer. It's just, like, it's, it's even now, after all these years, just the, the spectacle of it, to, like, look at it and think, like, how did politics yeah. become this? Like, yeah. how is it even possible? And I think that that look of sort of questioning that you saw in him was proper it's a proper human moment of actually yeah. thinking like well yeah. hang on the boat we're, we're on the boat and we thought the tide was going a certain way and it isn't it was actually it was a really good hour of telly i thought it was actually it was worth watching and there are some very good labor mps on this that do represent 
constituencies that in 2016 voted leave and may even still be a slight you know percentage or two ahead for leave mm. uh, even though they've shifted markedly over the last two years and that those MPs will 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 go on record saying and have done I know that I represent people who voted leave as well as you know significant chunk of voted remain but I cannot in all good conscience walk through a lobby and vote for my constituents to be poorer. And so for that reason, I am out and proud for a people's vote. And, you know, we have to do our best to applaud and, and celebrate and support those MPs. So if you've got a Labour MP, make sure you're writing to them. You know what's so good about those programmes, by the way, is the fact that it, it just, by the way that they operate, they tell the lie to the whole will of the people thing. That idea that people are like a slab of homogenous opinion. Mm. And even when you get into them, even when you see different kinds of leave opinion, different kinds of remain opinion, you see the individuality there. And it's sort of, it, it, it actually just by by the way, by the show don't tell of it sort of undercuts that whole people's yeah. vote sort of attitude. And there were there were other aspects. Pardon, doesn't undercut the people's vote. The way the people said In the um, subsidiary polls, uh, which which I like I said I didn't see the show but I did did read about this. There, there seemed like some good news in terms of attitudes to Im- immigration and mm-hmm. freedom of movement. Although, and again, I'm trusting. Producer Andrew here that he's, he said that David Gork said this maybe he didn't. Uh, David Gork said that's not what they're saying on the doorstep, which is like a classic hmm. yep. Bre- Brexiter's response yep. to actual properly conducted opinion polling. Yep, it's just like this person I spoke to the other day doesn't think that. Which is why it's so great that the People's Vote campaign got a £1 million um, f- uh, donation for doing polling that enables them to do it at a constituency level so that any national poll just cannot be dismissed. And why, listeners, you must write to your MP, you must go and see them, you must send them a voice note using finalsay.app. You've got to do all of these things so that they are hearing from you because we've got to combat this lazy, lazy narrative of, yes, well, nationally that might be the picture, but in my backyard it's a completely different story. I'm not hearing this from my uh, constituents. You know, We do know that, that MPs are telling us that they are still more likely to get letters about a whole range of environmental issues than they are about Brexit. Finally, is, is that you said it was really good, good TV, uh, Ian? Is there a, is there a better way of doing this? I mean, I wonder this about politics TV in general because I watch I watch so little of it because it just seems like the formats are so kind of predictable. The rhythms are very predictable. Is there a, is there a better way of doing it, or or is is this sort of the least worst option for people, studio audience? I'm not the be- I'm not the best on this because I'm quite I have quite a sort of nostalgia I have a sentimental sort of attachment to the whole sort of studio debate. I remember like a, so a few years back, um, uh, my girlfriend at the time was was Indian. She came over and we were watching Question Time together, which everyone has a mass hate for. You know, every mm. week yeah. the whole of Twitter will tell you that it's the most terrible thing ever. It and is. she was just astonished at the idea that a Secretary of State would be sat there right in front of a voter with the voter telling them what they thought. And that it seems that there is something that should be preserved in that. That that is something that most countries do not have, mm. and we do. And I know that it can be quite frustrating to watch. A lot of the time, it is, and the people that are selected for the panel might be annoying. And lots of the time, it's true that there's no point saying that, that the public are wonderful just by virtue of being the public. Loads of members of the public are morons. I mean, that is that is just statistically going to be the case. But it seems to me that it's a pretty good way to do it. And, and overlapping that with some firm data on stuff like polling, I think, makes for a pretty good political experience. It's still a bit awkward and a bit funny sometimes. Mm. But I thought it was pretty good. I think also we've not really touched on Caroline Lucas's role in all of this um, and I think there's really interesting symbolism there of her being the kind of sole remainer anchor on, on that on that show. Um, when the Greens took second place and overtook the SDP in a couple of state level German elections last month so I think this could potentially be this portent for some kind of future political realignment that might occur if Labour don't get off the bloody fence soon and stand up for internationalism. She was she was good. great. The, the way she looks at Farage is the way that your heart yeah. feels when he talks. Like it is, <laughs> she was spot on. She's really emerging as the Queen of Remain, hmm. which is an official, official role. She came decided up, for, she came by, up with, decided by naming. She came up with the phrase "people's vote." That was her word. Was it? Yep. Uh, yeah. No, fair enough. She's she's the Queen of Remain. We'll have a ceremony. Finally, more polls. A new Politico poll says <laughs> most British voters. <laughs> Not more Polish people, leave us, don't worry. Uh, a new Politico poll says most British voters want Brexit compromise, but Tories don't. Tom McTake and Annabel Dixon wrote that while the public wants decision-making powers returned to Westminster after Brexit, rather than accepting rule-taker status, it opposes leaving without a deal and supports compromises being made to reach an agreement. Uh, which makes a lot of sense. 47% want to compromise against 35% who want May to walk away. 
I, mean, I think a lot of people want May to walk away, but presumably they mean from a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Staying in the EU, Edge is leaving with no deal by 53.5% to 465 and 59% of people would extend the transition period if it got us a better deal. So the electorate, and I think this has been the case since day one, has, has always sort of been more willing to compromise uh, than... The, the Tories would suggest, and in fact, a lot of the kind of uh, the, the media discourse would would suggest. Uh, is there is there any way that the that this knowledge would sort of encourage uh, encourage the Tories to to seek these kind of options and give them, you know put more wind in their sails, or when you've got the ERG blowing in the other direction? This metaphor is going wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, does does it matter? Does the fact that the public would like a majority of the public would like compromise make any difference actually to the likelihood of what, of what the Tories do? So I think what May's trying to do with her deal is a compromise, and as mm. Remainers, that's terrifying and exactly what we don't want <laughs> because it will look like a blessed relief versus no deal, and so you know it all becomes much more difficult to vote down. Um, I think the DUP have got her firmly by the short and curlies this week, um, and and you know. I think what we can take from their chief whip yesterday, uh, tweeting about how we're much closer to no deal than ever before because Ireland are you know, refusing to play ball over, over the backstop being temporary, just shows us everything we need to know about the fact that they're very happy for the return of a hard border uh, on the island of Ireland. Um, and you know that points to the patheticness of our first-past-the-post system where you've got a minority view of the DUP because the majority of people in Northern Ireland do not agree with them on this issue, but having disproportionate levels um, of, of power and influence. Um, so, you know, I, I think that uh, this poll is a very small sample compared to the Channel 4 poll, which I think has given us a slightly more balanced view of, of where the country's mm. at, so I'm not sure I want to read too much into all of this. Um but no, I think I think that the hardliners on on both sides of their positions, are, you know, we we know that the the people, the outliers, both in, you know, the most Levy people and the most re- remaining people are only entrenching more. It's amazing, um, though, isn't it? Do you remember, like, about a year ago when we were doing this, we were scared of No Deal, uh, like in terms of how it would how it would poll, so that we always had that sense of like. It, to a guy in the public can sound kind of reasonable. It just sounds like you're gonna, you're just not going to buy the car. It's like, fine, I went down to the lot. I didn't like the stuff he was offering, so I'm just not going to take the car. And, and our sort of task was to go, no, no, no. It's like shooting yourself in the face yeah. if you don't take the car. Yeah. And so that it, there was a danger there that it would sound reasonable and wasn't. And actually, that didn't... It doesn't seem that Poland and Poland and Poland doesn't seem to suggest that that worked. It seemed that people are actually very, very wary of No Deal. <laughs> Now, parliamentary procedure is going to become increasingly important as we get closer to the meaningful vote on a Brexit deal, and afterwards too, as the government's use of those mysterious Henry VIII powers becomes more significant. It's important we need to understand it. We, stroke I, don't. So we're very happy (laughs) to welcome Ruth Fox of the Hansel Society's Romaniacs to explain it all. Hi, Ruth. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Firstly, for listeners who don't know, I mean, they've probably heard of Hansard, but what is the Hansard Society? Well, we are completely separate. We're not part of Hansard, the record of parliamentary debates. We're a political research and education charity, but we focus on parliament and reform of parliament, parliamentary procedure, the legislative process. I was just wondering whether you've got any cease and desists from Hansard. No, that's our name. But it does cause an awful lot of confusion on Twitter because Hansard does not have a Twitter account. So every time they want to refer to parliamentary debates, they copy us in. Uh, so when they want to abuse MPs for what they said on 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 uh, in the debates, we get all the Twitter feeds. It's like that guy John, John Lewis at Christmas time, isn't it? <laughs> it's hard times. Um, now the Hansard Society has just produced a report on the Henry VIII powers. Um, they they came up some time ago, probably quite early in the in the life of the show. Can you mind us what they are and why they're called Henry VIII powers? Well, essentially, in the EU Withdrawal Act, there are powers um, that are confer uh, provisions on ministers to legislate to bring about the changes to the statute that we need for exit day. And the Henry VIII powers mean that, um, essentially, the power is for ministers to be able to amend or even potentially repeal, but generally amend, an act of parliament through what's called a statutory instrument. The statutory instrument attracts a lower level of scrutiny than it would if ministers had to legislate through an act of parliament itself. So the reason they're they're called Henry VIII is because they confer tremendous power on ministers with much less scrutiny than you get through the parliamentary bill process. 
There's a couple of different types, isn't there? There's negative and, and affirmative. Could you, could you talk us through the difference between them? Yeah, so um, in the bill, in the clauses in the bill, ministers have to say what the scrutiny procedure will be in Parliament that the powers will be subject to when they bring the instrument forward. And there's two primary forms. Negative, which is a sort of lower level of scrutiny, which basically will be... It, the, the instrument comes forward, it's laid before Parliament, and it becomes law after a certain number of days unless a member of Parliament or a peer objects to it and there has to then be a debate. But the MP and peer have to themselves proactively uh, object. Mm. The affirmative requires that there must be a debate before it can become law. Um, so there's then, a, in the House of Commons, there's then a committee uh, called the Delegated Legislation Committee that will scrutinise them, look at them and then um, approve them. Is there anything they can do to stop it at the end of that debate? They can choose to reject the instrument, but the problem with this form of legislation is that you can only approve or reject. There's no amendment of the kind that you get in a, a primary legislative process mm. for, a, for a bill. You guys, you guys have been sort of tracking how many have been used, because is, is 800, we think, are going to be needed before Brexit Day. Yeah, the government's been saying consistently it thinks it needs 800 to 1,000 to amend the statute book. It's saying at the moment that probably the lower end of that spectrum, so we're looking around 800. And uh, as of as of uh, close of play yesterday, they had brought forward 112 of those, that, that lower mm. level of 800, which is uh, about 14% of what they think they will need. So there is a long way to go. So they can be really banging them out as they get close to the deadline, aren't they? <laughs> That's just exactly like how civil servants talk about Yeah, it. just like pulling all-nighters. <laughs> it's just like where they've got like one of those, like, you know, like a, a, a totometer or whatever they call it. <laughs> On the side of the room. Totometer. I know, like, on a, tel- like on a telethon when they're trying to raise enough money. They're trying to get to 800. Um, and what kind of things do they cover? All sorts of things, anything from sort of, you know, regulation of livestock to um, merchant shipping vessels rules, um, anything in terms of, you know, lots of business instruments for regulation of of business arrangements and transactions with the European Union. Uh, It's a huge, huge range of things. Um, And some of it's quite technical so it might just be removing a a reference to the European Commission or the European Parliament or European legislation from the original Act of Parliament that that we have or it actually then you know they've got to replace it with something and that's where a lot of the political and policy conflict comes because what are they replacing the European Commission or the European Parliament reference with if it for example you're a farmer in Wales say who regulates the way in which you have to register your livestock Mm. matters. Is it going to be the minister? Is it going to be another regulatory agency? So that's where, you know, power... Okay, taking back control, power's coming back, but where is the power going to? So that's where a lot of the sort of political and policy conflicts is going to be in terms of the debate about these these changes. Because some of this sort of minor technical stuff you talk about, I think most people would understand that that is something you don't necessarily... It doesn't have to go through parliamentary scrutiny and that people can just, you know, change, change these small things. Which areas do you think, I mean, are there areas which you think are more sort of democratically problematic that they kind of take too much power away? Well, there is an argument and it's advanced by people like Lord Judge, former head of the High Court, for example, who argue from a constitutional perspective, conferring powers on ministers through these Henry VIII provisions to amend acts of Parliament that Parliament has already looked at, scrutinised properly, Conferring power on them to to do it in a way that Parliament can't then really amend is a constitutional abomination. And his argument is you should consign them to the dustbin of history. Now, you know, arguably in this case, because of the the scale, the volume, the timescale deadline we face in March, the government's really got no option but to do it this way. But, you know, it's, it's... a question not so much of, of the sort of the nature of the changes, but w- what is where is the power passing to? Mm. So, you know, is it going to ministers, in which case you're talking about a very significant shift of, uh, of power and responsibility to mis- ministers? Is it going to a regulatory agency, uh, an environmental body? Um, you know, for example, let's take another one, um, flags. Flags, hugely controversial issue in Northern Ireland. Mm. But... There is a proposal in an instrument that has that has been laid before Parliament that on Europe Day, for example, um, the the legislation previously required the European Union flag to be flown on that day. 
in future, they're, they're changing the requirement from must to may. Hmm. Now, that's a small technical change. I would argue that's not terribly controversial, because if we're no longer a member of the European Union, why should it be automatic that we would fly the flag? Um, but that's something that MPs want to debate. So what matters to me might mm. be quite different to what matters to you or matters to MPs and peers. And that's really the problem, is, is finding, in this volume of 800 SIs, finding the needle in the haystack that matters. Why do you think they've been so slow? Is it that they're being just a bit incompetent, a bit slow about getting them up? Or is there a suspicion that actually the idea is that you'd create an artificial peak and just shove through hundreds of these things to reduce the ability of Parliament to scrutinise them? Um, I tend to go more for um, cock-up than conspiracy. And I think, I I mean, I think genuinely they have not been quite sure about how to do this. And because of the questions about, you know, do they need to legislate for no deal? Do they need to legislate Mm. for particular types of deal? Some of the changes, they're not exactly sure what they should what they should make. So regarding the the meaningful vote, can can you roughly explain what what kind of bill the government wants to lay before the Commons and then what the Commons wants to vote on and if there's a kind of uh, difference between those two things? Well, the government under the EU Withdrawal Act has to lay a motion before the House to effectively endorse the, the the, the, the deal, the agreement that they reach. The content of that agreement will be then contained in a bill, which will be the European Union Withdrawal Agreement Bill, and they will have to approve that as well. Um, and essentially that will be an international treaty. Um, The motion, it's a political question, can the government get that motion through? Because if it can't, then it can't ratify the deal. Mm. Um, And where the debate is on the motion is whether or not that can be amended. Mm. Because if, if, if it can, what type of amendment... Is it a procedural change? Is it a content change that affects ratification and the clarity the government needs about whether or not this deal has indeed been ratified? If they don't get the motion, frankly, they're not going to bring the deal, the, the bill forward because they won't have the majority for it. So in a sense, the, the motion sets up then the next stage, which will be you know, legislating over the, the minor detail. That distinction seems key, isn't it, whether it's process or content? Because, I mean, Rob's argument was if you amended at all, that's like sending us back to the negotiating table and we can't, we'd have, we'd have settled everything by then. But, of course, if it was to say we, we would accept the deal on the basis of a second referendum, for instance, that doesn't affect what has been negotiated with Europe. So, therefore, that comes on the process rather than content, or, or can the distinction not be made that simply? I think the distinction can be made, but I think it's a question in terms of, of, of process whether um, the procedure, in this case the referendum, can be achieved by the 29th of March. Mm-hmm. You know, if it cannot, then we have a problem with ratification because the government, can, even with, the, with its mm-hmm. best endeavours, cannot deliver that and therefore cannot ratify. And the argument about a referendum is we're running out of time. Mm. Um, if you look at the work that the Constitution Unit at UCL have done on this, they think it takes six months to do it properly. So we haven't got six months. So if they insert a referendum, then you, you, the government simply cannot ratify on that basis because by 29th of March, we will be out if it's not ratified Who and makes, with no deal. Is, is it the Speaker then that makes the decision as to whether it, it can be amended, the motion? The motion can be amended. I mean, it's an amendable motion. What the nature of the amendment is will be a matter of scope, and the, the Speaker will have some influence over that in terms of the, the scope of, of what can be included. And then the, the, a choice about how many amendments and how it's done, what order. Do the amendments come first, uh, as would be normal for this kind of, of government motion, or will the government motion be voted on first and only get to amendments if the government motion is rejected? So the Speaker will have some influence in that debate, although what we're seeing in Parliament at the moment with the committees is they're trying to look at this to try and reach a, a, an agreement on how it should be done before it gets to the Speaker, because there's, you know, there's a design not to politicise the Speaker's position and mm. put him in a very difficult political, political place. And if, say, you're the kind of person that would very much like a people's vote, what would be the... I, I appreciate there's, there's many sort of obstacles and complexities. What would be the kind of uh, quickest route? Your parliament, in t- just in terms of parliamentary procedure, if there was just... Forget the politics. If everyone was just on board with this, what would be the quickest way that that would 
what were the stages for that to to take place? The quickest route, well, you would, you have to legislate for it. You mm. need legislation, so you yeah. would need a bill. Now, you know, theoretically, a bill can be scrutinised by both houses and go through in a day. Worst case scenario, that's not ideal. You could take the model of the last referendum bill and use that. So you've, you've got an off-the-shelf model that you could utilise. You also need to amend some of the other legislation around timetables, around funding. You've then got the non-legislative procedures that you would need, which is, you know, who are the two sides going to be? Who are the two parties to the referendum, the, the pro and the anti? What's the question? The Electoral Commission has to subject that to, to testing with the public before they go forward. So there are some, there's a legislative process that could arguably be done, but it's a question of whether you can do all the other steps as well and so what you know we obviously get asked this question quite a lot oh but you know there's just not time there's just not time and the the, i I think you know we need to rebut some of the stuff that was in that constitution unit paper because it it sort of outlines six months on a very technical uh assessment of of precedent and what's what's happened before but because we have so recently had a question uh that i have spoken to former commissioners electoral commissioners who have said actually our bit could be done much more quickly so one of the things that they do when they're testing a question is they will get um a a polling company that does quantitative research focus groups and employ them for a while to test questions over various different groups but what they could do if they wanted to do it quickly would be to hire all of the companies in the country and have them all do all of their groups in a week uh, and then you will have shortened it from six weeks down to one week so there are different mechanisms to, to shorten it as has been alluded to and of course we've got the will of the EU on this as well they have said to us you know they have and most EU leaders have sort of said you know if you need to extend Article 50 for a little bit to fit in a people's vote, mm. we would allow you to do that. Probably up to, I'm guessing, May uh, is well, really the they've got the elections, the elections in June. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, whatever, after, after Brexit is, you know, resolved... <laughs> resolved? Is it ever going to be resolved? Is it ever going to be resolved? <laughs> um, but, you know, how much sort of... Uh, how much more sort of constitutional, you know, deliberation and, and, and tidying up and working out the, the new way of doing things outside the EU. How long is that process going to take? Are we talking? Are we talking years of sort of adapting to this transition? Yeah, we're talking years. I mean, somebody I, I can't remember who it was now said, uh, you know, things are a process, not an event, and that's Brexit. I mean. We're looking at, if there's a deal, we're looking at an, uh, a transition and implementation period that'll take us through to the end of 2020. Then effectively that becomes the sort of the second exit day. Then you've got a whole process that will go beyond that of, of you know, there will have to be constitutional arrangements about how we liaise with the devolved legislatures. There'll be changes in terms of how we have to liaise with the European Union, the, Euro- the European Parliament in different ways that we've not had to before. Um, so it will... It, will go on for for some years not probably at this sort of heightened level (laughs) we couldn't sustain it but it but it will and you know one of the things i think has come through powerfully through this through this process things like scrutiny of delegated legislation statutory instruments things like the relations with the devolved legislatures these have been big problems for years this has not happened because of Brexit. These have been existing difficulties, but Brexit has shone a light on it and lots more people have taken an interest in it and engaged with it. Um, and even you can see in, in both houses of Parliament, MPs and peers, it's been a learning experience about the nature of our constitution and how Parliament works. Because it's just fantastically hard for the public to... I mean, so much about Brexit, you know, that it's hard to understand, but even just on a parliamentary level explaining, as I said, you know, statutory instruments or, you know, the, the various kind of possibilities for, from this yeah. point onwards is kind of... And one of the things we would really like Parliament to do when they get past March, because there's going to be this sort of hiatus where the European Commission, the European Parliament going through the election period, they're not going to be able to negotiate. We're going to have a period of time when Parliament and government can take a step back and reflect, how have we dealt with things over the last two years? What could we change? What could we improve so that we deal with the next stage better? I think the interesting question is, will they do that or not? Be good if people did their jobs better. It would. That'd be good. No, I'm Give them go a prod. With, I'm going to go with no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Reece. Thanks for coming in. Right, before the end of the show, we've got some competition winners. Firstly, to celebrate our 1,000th Patreon backer and 3 million lifetime listens for the show. <clears throat> 3 million! We gave away five of our exciting new Romaniacs Christmas mugs, which will be on general sale soon in festive red or green. They went to our 1,000th Patreon backer, Fiona Pollard of London East 17. 
<laughs> Plus three supporters that we chose at random, Dawn Renfrew, Cormac Flynn and Mark Northfield. And also the person who we think is our longest standing backer, who signed up as soon as we launched it back in September last year. Congratulations, Dan Hayward. Also, we had 10 copies of The Ladybird Story of Brexit by our good friends Joel Morris and Jason Hazley to give away to the people who wrote the best captions to a classic Ladybird image. Reading out captions on a podcast might get a little bit boring. So the winning ones are up on our Patreon page. But we will read out the names of the winners. Stuart Taylor, Gordon Wilkie, Chris Thompson, John Patience, Darren Leithley, Chris Brewer, Adam Smith, not that one, Re, <laughs> a.k.a. Unpaid Genius on Twitter, Chris Green and at UK underscore must underscore remain we're going to give the brexit at www.twitter.com we're going to give the brexit time capsule a holiday for one week only so here's this week's non-english clip and it's none more european because it's london at alex major with his friend astrid who is french german and living in berlin and they're talking in esperanto the language of the future oh god nishainas esti terura terura eraro Sendu helpon. That means, oh dear, we seem to have made a terrible, terrible mistake. Send help. (laughs) (laughs) If you're fluent in a European language, record a short farewell message on your phone, keep it cleanish, and email it with a translation to info at romaniacs.com. We'll use the best ones. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to our special guest, Ruth Fox from the Hansard Society. And don't forget those tickets for Romaniacs Live on Monday, 10th of December in London, on sale at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Thanks to Naomi and Ian. Ian and I are off to the Stroud Book Festival this evening to do Romaniacs Live. And this show will go out afterwards, so if you went along, we hope you enjoyed it in the past. (laughs) (laughs) But also the future. We'll see you next time. Here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a grand Dankeschön to our latest Patreon backers. Hello and thank you very much to William Miller, Nick Montany, Joe Dimmer, Steve Mortimer and Jamie Christie. And thanks from me to Paul G, Carolyn Lloyd, Sarah Kirkland, John Anson and Reed Dutty. Finally, thanks from me to Sakashiti Fukusumi, Jem Sheridan, Pierre Paolo, Jonathan Gratis and Guy Lippman. Many thanks and see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. Audio production was by me, Sophie Black. The producer is Andrew Harrison. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. 